Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When Pastor Dave Davis, who is the newly elected president of the Michigan District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, when he was elected last year, he made very clear what one of his main emphases was going to be, what one of his main encouragements was going to be for, for us. His challenge was that every member of every LCMS church in Michigan would be reading the Bible each and every day and that we would be reading through the Bible once every year. I made this challenge and and he, he made this challenge even though he knew that that would be a, a difficult challenge in some respects. But he made it so that we might be a more biblically grounded people where all of our, our conversations, all of our decisions, all of our days are steeped in the word of God. And, and just imagine what that would be like if we were all reading the Bible every year, what impact that would have on us and our churches. Now, again, President Davis recognized that that may seem like a tall task, especially at first, if that's not something we're used to, reading the Bible through every year. Of course, he did point out that Martin Luther used to encourage his people to read through the Bible twice a year. So when you think about it that way, President Davis is uh, going easy on us, I guess. But it's actually not as tall of a task as you might think. You can read through the Bible once every year if you read three chapters a day plus a psalm, and that takes less than 30 minutes. Uh, we can all think of things that we spend each and every day, spend time on, uh, that takes more than 30 minutes, and certainly things that are less important than the Word of God. And I know many of you have heard this, we've talked about this before, and, in, and so you've begun to do this, and that's phenomenal. What a difference that's making. It's been awesome to see. Now, there can be something that can be challenging then when we are reading through the Bible on our own or, or even in a Bible study, and that's knowing how to interpret what we're reading. When we run across something and we want to understand what it means. Because if you try to understand a certain passage of Scripture, whatever it may be, and, and so maybe you go and read some other commentators, what, what they say about it, or, or heaven forbid you go online and Google uh, searching for interpretations, you're going to find a whole host of voices to listen to that you could listen to, some of which you can trust, but many of which you can't. And so how do we navigate all that? And that's why our gospel reading today, the passage of Jesus walking on the water from Matthew chapter 14, is a perfect example for us on how to read and interpret the Bible faithfully. Because this passage, as well as a few others in Scripture, seem to serve as a, a lightning rod for just a whole host of, of different interpretations on it. You see, it can serve as an example of how to read the Bible faithfully and why reading the Bible faithfully matters. To begin with, we have to understand what the Bible is all about to begin with. What, what is the purpose of Scripture? Because knowing why the Scriptures were written will help us know what we're supposed to gain when we're reading it. And because God is good, he has given us the answer very clearly. Jesus was speaking with the crowds in John chapter 5, for instance, and he said to them, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. By the way, when, when Jesus or other people in the Bible talk about the scriptures, they mean the Old Testament, the Torah, the prophets, the writings. 
And so Jesus goes on, it is they, the scriptures, the Old Testament, that bear witness about me. Or later, in Luke's gospel, when the resurrected Jesus was walking with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, he was explaining to them why it was necessary that the Christ had to go and suffer and then rise again. And it says in Luke's gospel, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures everything concerning himself. And then a few verses later, When he appeared to his disciples, he said to them, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, the entire Old Testament was written about Jesus to point people, to point us to Jesus. And the same, of course, is true with the New Testament, which shows how all of those promises from the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. The Apostle John writes about this at the end of his gospel, which serves as a thesis statement, really, for the entire Bible. We sing it in our Hallelujah verse. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so all of Scripture, all of the the Bible, Old Testament and New, it's all about Jesus. And so when we read the Bible, then, we need to have what's called a Christological reading of the text. That means we first and foremost see how the Bible points us to Christ. As many pastors and authors have so often and so wisely said, cut the Bible anywhere, any page, Old Testament or New. And it will bleed with the blood of Christ. But unfortunately, not everyone sees this or believes this or does this. Instead of reading out of the Bible, its intended meaning about Jesus, many people instead bring their own preconceptions to the Bible and read into it their own ideas, their own beliefs, their own desires, their own things that that they think sound good. They read the Bible to see what they want to see instead of what's actually there provided by God. So what's the difference? What does that actually look like? Well, let's return to our gospel reading today and we'll see how this works. Our our reading today takes place immediately after last week's reading, the the feeding of the 5,000. And so at the end of the day, the same day when Jesus has fed the crowds, he makes his disciples get into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, and he goes up on a mountain to pray. And Jesus waits until the fourth watch of the night, sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., the darkest part of the night. And he can see the disciples struggling to cross because the wind and the waves were against them. Now note, This is not what caused the disciples to be afraid. The disciples weren't afraid because of the wind and the waves. This isn't the same account as when Jesus was in the boat with them and he fell asleep and there was a storm and they were afraid they were going to die. No, this is different. The disciples, after all, were experienced fishermen. They knew what to do in this particular situation. It was difficult, but it wasn't fearful. Not yet. But Matthew tells us the moment when it did become fearful, and that's the moment when Jesus showed up. 
Jesus is walking on the water and the disciples, Matthew says, were terrified and they said it is a ghost and they cried out in fear. Note their threefold reaction. They were terrified. They thought it was a ghost and they cried out in fear. And so how does Jesus respond to them? Well, he responds with a threefold response. They were terrified. Jesus says, take heart. They thought it was a ghost. Jesus said, it is I. They cried out in fear. Jesus said, do not be afraid. It's a beautiful depiction of how Jesus perfectly responds to us in his mercy and grace. But remember, our task is to determine how to read this faithfully, how to read this centered on Christ and nothing else. And so what comes next then is absolutely critical. How we read what happens next with Peter affects the whole meaning of the passage. Is Peter going to be a hero in this passage or not? Well, many people interpret it that way. They say that Peter stepping out of the boat and walking to Jesus is a victorious moment for Peter. And therefore, we should use this as an example of what a faithful life should look like. They have read their own ideas into the text. And so it goes usually something like this. That Jesus was testing his disciples and Peter was the only one who passed the test. He stepped out in faith boldly and Jesus is now calling us to similar faith. That Jesus meets us halfway in life, but the rest is up to us to trust in him, to be willing enough to step out of the boat. I have heard countless sermons like that and perhaps so have you. In fact, let me read about a minute of a sermon like that. This one called Step Out of the Boat, uh, delivered by a famous televangelist who gets millions of views every week and every month, the sermon from a little more than 10 years ago. He says, you've got to be willing to go where you haven't been before. If you're going to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. You can't stay in your safe zone your whole life and expect to reach your highest potential. You've got to be willing to take some risks. It's interesting, when Peter walked on the water, there were other disciples in the boat. Those other men sitting beside Peter, they had the same potential to walk on the water. Why was Peter the only one who did it? Peter was the only one willing to get out of his comfort zone and try something he's never tried before. He was the only one, so to speak, that believed his potential. And you have potential in you right now for every opportunity that God will bring across your path. But you've got to be like Peter and get out of your safe zone and into the faith zone. That's the end of the quote. So the question is, why isn't reading the Bible like that correct? Well, first of all, it's not correct because you notice that it isn't Jesus who's at the center of the Bible anymore. It's Peter, and then therefore it's us. In fact, you start to get the impression from that that Peter was somehow the one who was responsible for the miracle. People who, who read us as the center of the passage are shoving Jesus aside and putting us at the center. Peter, therefore, becomes a model for our faith, and we become the ones who are responsible for living up to some kind of standard of spiritual achievement. 
But why do people think that? Why do people believe this and teach this? Well, the first reason is because they are not approaching Scripture Christologically. They are not reading Jesus at the center of the Bible. They claim to be Christian, and I pray that they are. However, ironically, Jesus is not at the center of their faith. Yes, they say that Jesus died and rose again for them, but their world, their faith actually depends on them, their willpower, their sinlessness, their intellect, their faith. You heard in that quote that I read multiple times about our potential as humans, how God has has somehow given us all some kind of potential, some spiritual potential, and is just waiting for us to have enough faith So that we can achieve a breakthrough, some kind of spiritual or material success in life. And I've got to be honest, that is very enticing to believe. It draws, like I said, a lot of listeners. Because it sounds delightful. Who doesn't want to have success in life? We generally, as humans, like to hear that we are in charge, that we are in control, that we are the most important people. But it's not true. And it's not a faithful reading of Scripture. The Bible is not about us. It's about Jesus. So let's return to Matthew 14 one more time. And instead of reading into it our own presuppositions and ideas, let's read out of it the true meaning of the text as it presents itself, knowing that it has to tell us something about Jesus. First of all, again, remember Jesus had just got done saying this incredibly merciful, gracious, and powerful statement, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And when we hear the word of Christ, we know that his word should be enough for us. It should have been enough for the disciples. But what are the first words out of Peter's mouth? Peter, who is so often quicker to speak than to think. Lord, if it is you. Command me to come to you on the water, if it is you. Jesus' gracious words were not enough for Peter. Peter doesn't actually yet believe that this is Jesus. And what's more, his words sound oddly familiar to other words spoken in Scripture, like the devil's words when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Or the people who mocked Jesus at the cross. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So should we commend Peter for speaking this way to Jesus, the one who is Lord over the sea and over all creation? No, we do not. And yet, how does Jesus choose to respond to Peter after he says this? Not with a reprimand, although he probably deserved it, but with even more mercy and grace. Come, come, Jesus says. Jesus invites Peter to come. And so Peter did get out of the boat and he joined Jesus in this miracle of walking on the water. And Peter presumably made it quite a distance because now Jesus was close enough to to touch and to grab Peter. And so all should be well now, right? Well, not quite. Because once again, Peter is going to fail. He takes his eyes off Jesus and instead puts his eyes on the wind and the waves. And so Peter begins to sink. And for the third time now, Jesus responds to the fearful cry of one of his disciples. Peter yells, Lord, save me. And Jesus does. He grabs him. 
And he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter doubted Jesus not once but twice. The first time when he was wondering, he was doubting whether it really was Jesus on the water. And the second time, doubting whether Jesus was going to do what he actually said he would do when he invited him to come to him. Peter is not a role model of faith for us. Peter was not deserving of rescue. Peter is not admirable or bold in faith. Peter failed. But you see, the Bible is not about Peter. The Bible is about Jesus. So what does it mean that we read this Christologically? Well, it means that Peter's weak faith is being showcased So that in direct contrast, Jesus' identity as the powerful Son of God, as well as his compassionate mercy and grace, might be seen more fully by us. Ask yourself, was there ever a master more powerful than Jesus, whose power included walking on the waters, and who at a command could call the winds to cease? And was there ever a master more patient and gracious than Jesus, who chooses to use his power for the sake of all who call upon him in desperate need, even when we are the ones who have created our desperate need. Jesus could have rebuked Peter and said, hey, you got yourself into this mess, you get yourself out. But that's not what Jesus says, not even for a moment. And neither does Jesus do that for us. This passage, when we ask, what does it tell us about Jesus, clearly shows that Jesus is the one who has come with all power, but who has also come to share his mercy and grace for the sake of people who don't deserve it. Jesus patiently bore with Peter when he doubted him and failed him and had such little faith so that we might know what Jesus will do with us when we doubt, when we fail, when we have such little faith. Jesus shows us what kind of Savior he is, that he is always there to forgive, to strengthen, to comfort, to save. Jesus came to save us from our sins, not because we deserved it, Not because he looked down and saw that each of us had our own little spark of potential in us and he just needed to come to unlock it for us or something like that. That is a dangerous and deadly heresy. And that is not how we read the Bible. No, the Bible is clear about that. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us because, not because we are lovable. God loved us so that he could save us and so that we could be recipients of his eternal and undeserved love. God sent his son Jesus to die for all of our sins so that we might be forgiven and redeemed and so that we could live forever with him. And this also means that In the days when we are tempted to be discouraged because we realize we're not living the faithful lives we know that we should be living. Because we are continually needing to repent and ask for forgiveness because we so often have to cry out, Lord, save me. But that's precisely when Jesus reaches out his hand to us each and every day of our lives and says, I've got you. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. That's how we read Matthew 14. 
And that's how we read the Bible. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. The one about whom the scriptures are written. And how you read the scriptures does matter. You are to read and to hear the word of God faithfully every day, knowing that these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In his name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our faithful Lord. Amen.